This episode of The Curbsiders is available for CME and mock credit through our partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can go to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders and claim their free CME and mock credit. Thank you and enjoy the show. For entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back. For the second time, at least for us. Hey. <laughs> well, hello, Matthew. Hi. Hi, everyone. This is Matt Watto here with co-hosts, and this is the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. Stuart, you here? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> Great. It's gold. Who else is here, Paul? I'm probably going to wait another 45 minutes just to make sure we're actually recording, and then I'll, I'll chime in. So I'll let you guys roll. We'll do one or, th- one or three more dry runs, and then, uh, then I'll give it a go. But yeah, I'm, I'm here for sure. All right. And our, our fearless leader for tonight's episode, the Chew Man, I believe he's here as well. That's me. So Chris, did you, did you want to lead us in the episode and tell people what it's about? Yes. So today is another monthly edition of the Curbsider Journal Club. Um, there's been a few tweaks to our format as um, the sub-series continues to evolve. After hearing, getting some um, listener comments, we realized that we're not always as clear about how this episode is structured. So I sort of want to go over that. You know, over the last month, we've developed a list of like more than like 40 interesting articles and news stories that um, we've been reading for ourselves to uh, feed our own brain holes. Um, and from this list, we've um, plucked a select few that we really wanted to highlight and share with you today. And so for our feature articles, we're going to cap them at eight minutes. And then for our shorter ones, our hot takes to about four minutes each. So you guys may hear a gong go off. And that's when we, uh, we're running out, we've, we've run out of time for talking to the, about these articles. So, um, do you think we should just go on and, uh, do our first one? Yeah. And I just want to get, I just want to clarify. So the rating scale, we have we're gonna give <laughs> uh, we're gonna give a number a of hot stack? cakes. Yeah, so there's a full stack, a half stack, or is it a short stack? And then uh or you can just give individual hot cakes as I believe Stuart or Paul were doing last episode. But six is the most. That's a full stack, right? Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe the audience could give us some feedback if they want us to stop doing food puns, but uh, Let's let's go to the first article. <laughs> Audience, I beg of you, please give us feedback to stop doing food puns. Please help me out. All right. So our first article, Matt's going to present. Um, this is an article by Eric D. Bateman et al. Um, the title is As Needed Budesonide Fomoterol versus Maintenance Budesonide in Mild Asthma. This is from New England Journal of Medicine that just came out in May 2018. So this article is basically trying to answer the question for mild asthma is a as needed, what we would have usually thought of maintenance inhaler effective or more effective than just a short acting beta agonist, which is kind of what what most people do when they have mild asthma. And they note that even when patients have mild asthma, like mild persistent asthma, if they're given a maintenance inhaler, there's poor adherence. So it's kind of attractive to have an inhaler that you could use on an as needed basis that might work. And also could potentially save costs. 
the the one that was studied here, there were two trials published in New England Journal of Medicine, the Sigma-1 and Sigma-2 trial. The Sigma-2 trial version is as-needed budesonide for motorol versus maintenance budesonide with as-needed terbutaline, which is pretty much the equivalent of albuterol. And that was basically, they were compared to see which group had uh, fewer exacerbations and they followed them out about a year. And they actually found that there was no no significant difference in asthma exacerbation. So it was a non-inferiority trial. And so that it was non-inferior using the budesonide for motorol as needed. And what, what struck me about this trial and why I wanted to look into it is because I was like, how can you use a long-acting beta agonist, like a, an inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta agonist for someone who's having acute symptoms of asthma. And it's actually that formoterol actually has a, a quick onset of action. It's about three minutes and it does have a long duration of action. You should not you should not generalize this to salmeterol, which is in some of the other products available in the United States because salmeterol for asthma has an onset, Stuart, what is it? 30 was, to 48 uh, 30, minutes, something yeah, like that? Yeah, 30 to 48 minutes is what it uh, what up to date says here. And then COPD is even longer. Yeah. And that links from LexiComp. So I, I tend to trust what LexiComp says when it comes to this kind of thing. And so so these patients actually were just using budesonide for motorol as needed. And they there was really no difference, in, significant difference in asthma-related quality of life either. There was a, uh, a questionnaire that they, they filled out there. There was a slight it was slightly in favor of the budesonide maintenance and terbutaline group. But if you look at the clinical significance of the test, it was it was not clinically significant. There was a statistical difference between them, but not clinically. So I think, you know, this could potentially be practice changing if you have patients with mild asthma and they don't want to take a daily maintenance inhaler, they're going to get exposed to less steroids and they they should do just as well with exacerbations. You just have to be careful. And I can't, uh, emphasize this enough. This was with formoterol, so you want to make sure you know the pharmacology of the agent you're using because salmeterol, right. the onset of action is is like 30 to 45 minutes, which is going to be too long for these patients. Um, yeah. And then the other, oh yeah, go on. I was going to say it's a, a little shocking because at least the primary uh, formulary where I work, it's actually combination fluticasone salmeterol that's that is suggested instead of the budesonide formoterol. I suspect that's a cost issue. Yeah. I mean, and, this is, there's a significant difference when you look at the uptake. I'm just looking at these graphs. It's it's sizable. Not the, not the graphs from the, the one that you're referencing, but some of the other uh, phase three clinical trials. Mm-hmm. I, I should have known this, and I just didn't. And you should also, just the other thing we were talking about in pre-recording to pay attention to, these these trials, and this is from one of the editorials that we can link to, these trials had used the dry powder inhaler, which is a lot right. easier for patients to take because those those are where the medication is just sitting there and all the patient has to do is in, take a deep breath and inhale versus in the US, the most of the most of the products with formoterol are a metered dose inhaler, which are harder to use. Those mm-hmm. are the ones where you have to sometimes you have to prime them and you have to make sure you coordinate your inhalation with with pumping out the medicine. So mm-hmm. Uh, you could use a spacer. Yeah, you could use a spacer where the medicine is sort of waiting there for you. But I think it's just harder for some patients and it's, you know, spacer's kind of a big thing for them to carry around. So I, I'd be careful. What was the main difference between the Sigma-2 and the Sigma-1 trials? The Sigma-1 trial was comparing 
it had one arm. It had three arms instead of two. So the same two arms as Sigma two. There was a budesonide mm. maintenance and a budesonide for motor oil combination, but it also had a short-acting beta agonist as the third arm, uh, and just as needed. So there was no inhaled steroid at all. And they found that the combination as needed, budesonide and formoterol, was superior to the short-acting beta agonist as needed when you looked at asthma exacerbations in a what year. Was the, the, what was the... So the rate of exacerbation, the, the, right, right, right. The rate of exacerbation was zero point two per year in the short-acting beta, beta agonist group, and point uh-huh. zero seven per year in the as-needed combination group. And you, you know, they they were predicting that that they were predicting for patients with mild asthma, they would have about point one four, they would have about point one four exacerbations per year. So the the short-acting beta agonist group actually had more exacerbations than predicted, and the the as needed combo group had less. Is this cha- is this changing everyone's like practice? I mean, is this practice changing? Yeah. So I guess we should get on to some hot cakes here. So I give this one at least a short stack. Um, I think the way it changed my practice is mostly what I learned about the pharmacology of inhalers in this one, yeah. and it is a nice option for patients who don't want to take a daily maintenance inhaler. It is a nice option to have. So full stack. I'm going to give it a pie. <laughs> What type of pie? No, three point one four one five nine. Okay, Paul. All right, Paul. You got anything? No, I think Stuart killed me with that last comment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that sounds great. All right, we came in under time, so we can go on to our next one. Paul's going to present an article by Scott Halpern at all, um, a pragmatic trial of e-cigarettes incentives and drugs for smoking cessation. This is also from uh, New England Journal of Medicine in May 2018. So I'm sorry, guys, two uh, New England Journal of Medicine articles, but I think they were both very interesting. So Paul, do you want to take it away? I was alarmed to see this one's much longer than two pages. <laughs> so I chose poorly this time around. I, I, I regret my decision. But I chose this one, even though I don't think it's specifically for individual practice. I, I think anything that sort of builds your armamentarium against helping patients quit smoking is, is maybe useful. So that's why I chose it. And also just because I thought the design was incredibly ambitious, too. So basically, what this what this study looked at is a number of interventions to actually help uh, patients quit smoking. And probably the the way it was structured is super interesting. So it was it's actually the people who were included in this study were people who were employed at one of 54 companies. And they had to be at least 18 years of age. And what they opted to do was actually use an opt-out system of enrollment. So so you just what? had to say, no, I don't want to be in the study to get out of it. Otherwise, you were just enrolled, which I thought was a fascinating way to do it, um, which, which becomes important later on. And so they actually they, they enrolled. <laughs> they identified over 6,000 smokers and only 125 opted out of this thing. Actually. <laughs> so they had 6,006 people that were ostensibly enrolled. And then they were randomized to one of five arms. Um, which I, I, again, I thought was a really fascinating approach. Did, did they happen to pass on all the disenrollment forms during their smoke break? <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were outside by the dumpster. Yeah. You just picked them up on your way out there. <laughs> um, so the arms that, so the control group was just sort of standard of care. Hey, here are the resources that are available to you. Go, go with God and good luck. And I didn't your triggers and that kind of thing. Um, and then. The other things that they offered, the other arms, were either free cessation aids, though that's all forms of nicotine replacement therapy, uh, bupropion or varenicline. And if you said you didn't have success with those in the past, then they offered you actually free e-cigarettes, which I thought was an interesting inclusion, uh, because e-cigarettes have not been something that have been studied super extensively. Um, 
of note, the e-cigarettes were provided by the company Enjoy. Um, <laughs> and as part of what was provided, they received battery sticks, a USB charger, and up to 20 chambers with a 1 to 1.5% nicotine per week and participants' chosen flavors, all of which I think emphasize the fact that I don't understand how e-cigarettes work. And that's on me. <laughs> so that was another group. So, so standard care, uh, free pharmacotherapy, which could include e-cigarettes if you'd failed pharmacotherapy in the past. A third group was free e-cigarettes without having to have failed in the past. And then the last two were reward incentives based in the amount of $600. So one was $600 worth of stuff. And the final group was a $600 um, basically deposit account that was redeemable by proving that you were chemically abstinent at at certain time frames. So they would do blood or urine tests, usually urine, and at one, three, and six months. And if you prove that you're absent with those tests at that time, you would get $100 the first month, $200 month three, and then $300 at month six. And that was the primary outcome they were looking at among all these groups was biochemical abstinence at six months. And so the long and the short of it is it's, it's interesting. They also did some, um, they identified a, a subgroup of the enrollment population as, quote, motivated. And these were patients who actually went on to the study website um, and filled out forms and actually did stuff actively. And so just by dint of going onto the website, they, these, that was how they determined these were these sort of motivated groups. And they actually did subgroup analysis on those patients that were on the website. So it, it turns out that if you don't have patients opt in, <laughs> the abstinent rates are, are not are not super impressive. And yeah. then, particularly if you offer uh, the free therapy, the standard care, or the free e-cigarettes, none of those things seem to really in- increase the rate of, of abstinence. Not surprisingly, financial incentives did. So whether it was the $600 reward that was in the deposit or the $600 worth of sort of financial rewards, um, those things actually did seem to increase the rate of abstinence. And then in this motivated group, the group that went on the website, that same pattern was found, but even stronger. So they had better rates of absence in, the, in those patients. So I, I thought it was a, I don't want to call it complicated because statistically it wasn't all that complicated, but the scope of what they looked at, I thought was interesting. I think that was one of the strengths of it. But they also, they identify as a weakness that they may have underestimated abstinence because to prove that you had quit smoking, you had to submit a sample. And if you didn't, they said you weren't abstinent. So there may have been patients who didn't report it who had actually quit, though I guess the likelihood of that seems a little bit slim to me. I think one weakness that I identified is that the population that I looked at just by dint of the inclusion criteria was employed. They had access to a computer. And so it's, I, I don't know that it's necessarily inclusive of sort of all the patients that I, I take care of. I feel there's sort of a certain baseline there that's not necessarily present in my, in a lot of my patients. So I don't know that it's directly applicable to some of my patient population. Um, but the bottom line that I took away from this is that if you're, if you're motivated you tend to do better. Yeah. So you have to kind of want to quit smoking. If someone says, hey, we're going to tell you to quit smoking now, that's probably not as effective even even if you give them free stuff. And then the other takeaway is there there may be benefits in companies, which obviously is not applicable to the individual prescriber, to actually give financial rewards because you don't have to pay a dime if the patients don't, if your employees don't quit. But if they do, that's when it actually costs you money. But it, it turns out that it actually probably saves you money to take care of to employ non-smokers than it does to employ smokers. So is it practice changing? No, it is not practice changing. I will not be giving patients my money to quit smoking. I think from a system standpoint, it's probably of interest. But um, will so you think, give people, will you give patients other people's money? I give hugs, just warm, affectionate hugs. And so my, as you may expect, my absence rate is not fantastic. So I don't know about you guys, but in my outpatient clinic, I actually very often get patients who they do want to quit smoking and they ask, um, what about switching over to e-cigarettes? And so as far as I know, I, I didn't have any any sort of research to back up any sort of discussion either way on this. And at least with this trial, I can say, well, I mean, it's 
likely not going to help, at least from my from just from the results of this trial. But I, I think, Chris, if you're the patients that would ask you about that actually seem to have some sort of an intrinsic motivation, right? Like if they're asking what ways can I quit doc and they're asking specifically for e-cigarettes. So I, I think I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm sold on that they're not efficacious. And I think there's even a study in BMJ that showed there might be some evidence that they're helpful. Um, I'd have to go back and double check that, but it's uh, the actual journal that it's in. But I, I think this study in terms of whether e-cigarettes are useful when I was a quitting modality, just the way that they sort of offered it to patients, I don't think it was the most useful way to study them mm-hmm. as a specific cessation modality in my mind, though. Maybe, maybe you guys disagree. I think you, that makes, that makes sense to me. Does anyone that has anyone else had patients talk to them about e-cigarettes for quitting? What do you normally tell them, Stuart? What do I tell them? Uh, essentially, from my understanding of uh, the e-cigarettes, there's not enough information for me to recommend or to uh, discourage their use one way or the other. But from what I know and from the information that I've been provided, that they're not safe versus nothing. That's so, like the USPSTF stance. Like, there's not enough information yeah, well, to <laughs> to make a judgment about. Right, that. right, right, <laughs> right. But but that's but that's that's what I say. Yeah. There's really not. No, I say the same thing. So. <laughs> All right, now on to our hot takes, which are meant to be a little more nugget-sized compared to our feature reviews. Matt, you got one on PCP? Right. This was Junwan Park at Al. It was on using uh, trim sulfa, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, which I will not say again. I'm going to call it trim sulfa. And this was from actually November 2017 in the Annals of Rheumatologic Disease. And this was basically looking at, because the reason I chose this article is because I have no idea who to give PC, uh, pneumocystis pneumonia prophylaxis or PCP <laughs> prophylaxis to. Or PJP. Yeah, or PJP. Yeah, if you want to be fancy, Stuart. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, I I never All know. Sex to be proud. Yeah, don't don't you guys feel that like when you're when you're talking to people and they're they're getting put on these when you're talking to your consultants, like it just seems like they just everyone does something different, and it just continues ad nauseum. Right. The consultant has moved or no longer in practice, and yeah, the patient's like, I've been taking this forever. I'm just going to keep <laughs> taking it. So Matt, what what did this article actually say? Like, so this article was looking at about 1,100 patients over an 11-year span in, in Seoul, Korea, in a big hospital there. And they, it was basically up to the treating clinician whether or not mm. a patient was going to get treated. And they were the only patients that were really being looked at were ones who were being treated with greater than 30 milligrams of prednisone for greater than a month. And so those patients were eligible to be in the study, and they kind of looked okay, the control group was patients who didn't get treated with trim sulfa, and the treatment group was patients who did. There was about 260-some episodes where patients were treated with trim sulfa when they met the criteria, and there was only 30 cases There was only 30 cases of pneumocystis pneumonia out of about 1,500 treatment episodes over this 11-year course. So it's pretty rare, and but when the patients did get it, there was about almost a 37% mortality rate. So it's a pretty bad complication that you don't want your patient to have. And and, and how many times did it happen in the treatment group? Yes. Yeah, so the, the treatment group had w- only one episode and it was a patient who had like stopped the drug because they had a rash or something from the trim sulfa. So it wasn't really... It, it wasn't Stevens-Johnson. Was it, it wasn't. Yeah. and it, but, but more important... Well, there was one episode of Stevens-Johnson. I don't think it was that same patient, but there was one episode okay. out of all this that did occur. There was two serious events. One was a Stevens Johnson syndrome. But basically, mm. the point is it worked that that the, the trim sulfa seems to work for PCP prophylaxis. Most of the patients were getting one double strength tab daily in this study, 
and uh, but they could have gotten one double strength tw- tab twice a day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday was the other other regimen that patients might have been on. But I like the uh, the the number needed to harm. It's fifty five to infinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, they they I guess the the number needed to harm for the overall group was about one hundred thirty two, and the number needed to treat was somewhere in the fifties. So they thought right. favorable correct. risk. Uh, benefit to risk ratio. And I will point out there's a a nice editorial that goes along with this. It says, yeah, you got to, this is retrospective. It was done in Korea. So you can't directly apply it to our patients, but the, the things you can take here, the patients that did tend to get the pneumocystis pneumonia, which is consistent with previous information was patients with vasculitis, like microscopic polyangiitis or lupus or uh, GPA, and then patients on greater than 60 milligrams of prednisone, that was another big risk factor. So if you have patients with the right risk factors on high dose of prednisone for more than four weeks, you should consider trim sulfa for prophylaxis. And then when can you stop it was my other question. And the editorialists talk about once they're on less than 15 milligrams a day, if they, uh, you can consider stopping it. You might con- continue it even longer, like down to 10 or, or less if uh, 10 milligrams or less a day, if the patient has a vasculitis and they're really old and they, they have low white count, they're on cyclophosphamide, those are some of the risk factors. So uh, I thought this was helpful, actually. I, I'd never really read about this before. Because some of those risk factors are the things that would make me nervous to start trimethamphetamine-sulfamethoxazole. <laughs> so you have this old patient with maybe uh, lupus nephritis or some other reason to have sort of kidney issues, and then you're, they're on cyclophosphamide and you're throwing right. TMPs off on that. It makes me, it would make me a little bit nervous. But uh, apparently there weren't that many renal-related adverse events that you saw? I, you know, I did not come across that in my reading here, so I'd have to look back closer to see. But I did not, the adverse events with trim sulfa were mainly just like hyperkalemia, rash, low platelets. They didn't, they didn't really mention renal outcomes. And I think that gong sound meant we're out of time. But uh, you guys can check out the article on our site, or we link to it on our site if you want to get more in depth. Paul, I think you have another another article by Jay Cobb Scott at all about cannabis. What if I From- said no? Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. I, it's I chose an article uh, based on my ongoing obsession with marijuana use and potential bad outcomes because uh, I, I was trying to find not a positive spin, but something that wasn't quite as negative as I've been going in previous episodes. So the one I chose is the association of cannabis with cognitive function in uh, adolescents and young adults because. The other reason I chose this is because when I'm precepting, I often have my residents tell me that they counseled the patient about their marijuana use, and then I ask them exactly how they counseled the patient, and they don't have a great answer because they don't know what to counsel, neither do I, because I don't think we fully understand the long-term risks. So I thought this would help me sort of better go after the one that I I think about. So, you know, you had this preconception of a stoner, someone who smokes all the time, and it just kind of makes them dumb, and is that a real <laughs> thing? Um, or maybe that's just me. But in any case, so what this what this is is a meta-analysis that looked at a bunch of studies, because that's what meta-analyses do, and to be included, you have to have patients that were less than the age of 26, they had to have heavier frequent use, and they had to do some sort of neurocognitive testing. Um, and it was, importantly, it was a cross-sectional analysis, so it looked at one particular sort of point in time as opposed to longitudinal studies, which they excluded. They used a lot of words, but it just seemed because it was complicated to assess them. <laughs> um, and so the, the long and the short of it is, is that Yes, marijuana use, heavy marijuana use, is statistically has statistically significant uh, decrease in cognitive function, but they go a long way towards really emphasizing it's not necessarily clinically relevant, this, this decrease in cognitive function and the domains that it affects, so things like learning and memory and stuff. And then the longer you go without smoking, 
the less of an effect that you actually see. So uh, for me, it, I always struggle with patient counseling. I don't know how you guys do. Really what I'm left with is please don't smoke pot and drive. Yeah. Um, I can't even <laughs> say pot will make you stupid because there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that, at least based on this meta-analysis. So, Paul, did they say that uh, with the abstinence, people get all the way back to their baseline before not smoking? And I think if I'm understanding correctly, that, that was one of the limitations of this because it's cross-sectional. They weren't really able to look right. really longitudinally all the way kind of out. So I don't know that they actually were able to assess that fully. When they looked at a cross-section 72 hours after of abstinence, then they really, then all the differences washed out, like all the cognitive effects seemed to be non-significant when they looked at least 72 hours since they last used. And to be absolutely clear, this is, this is in contrast to acute intoxication, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so if you're high, you have impaired function. Um, but in terms of long-term outcomes from marijuana use, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, clinically significant decrease in, in cognitive domains. So that was the takeaway from this. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see a, a more longitudinal study, not just a meta-analysis. I, I don't really like meta-analyses myself. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure people would sign up for it um, in droves. I don't think there'd be any trouble recruiting. So you should make that happen. <laughs> I don't like meta-analyses because they're really long to read and statistically really complicated. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've made terrible mistakes today. I think I chose two meta-analyses and I'm regretting it deeply. Yeah. But I thought they're supposed to be like the highest level of evidence, right, guys? <laughs> sure, sure. They could be lying to me. I don't know. I don't even know if they read the studies. It's, I don't uh, if, I, if I remember what Dr., uh, doctors Lane and Tashman told us that just because someone did a meta-analysis doesn't mean they should have done one. So they, they have to, <laughs> you know, they, yeah, so they're not all created equal. If it's the right data set, then then it, that lends itself to a meta-analysis and they did a nice system in, systematic review, then yes. And I'm just not good enough. I'm, a, I'm aspiring to get there, but yet I'm not good enough to uh, to really tell if they should have done one or not. And I'm aspiring as always to ride your coattails in the glory because I will not be <laughs> Oh, all right. Just in the nick of time, Paul. <laughs> all right. So I got to pick um, pick one of the our hot takes today, and it's basically on the new American Cancer Society guidelines. Um, it's been a while since they've updated it, and they do differ from from some of the other great large institutions. But probably the biggest thing that people noticed was that they said that average risk people should start colorectal screening at age 45. And definitely this was different from their previous recommendation, which said only African-Americans at age 45. Everything, everyone else is at 50 per very similar to all our other recommendations from USPSTF, American College of Physicians, American College of Gastroenterology. And so... What were you guys? Did you any of you guys see this? Well, it's a, um, it's a qualified and, recommendation, right, Chris? So it's not like a it's not a strong it's a strong recommendation to start at age fifty, which is consistent with USPSTF, right? But the right. it's a qualified recommendation. But I I don't fully understand like where that came from. Do you did it? Did you read like where that came from specifically? Yeah. Yeah, so they couldn't make a strong recommendation just because they didn't have a lot of direct evidence. Um, because basically, in general, most of the studies didn't include the 45 to 49 year olds. They actually, um, the studies they used were these like strange, um, uh, where was I? It's like micro simulation um, or something. Yeah, so there were like three micro simulations. Actually, one of them, one or two of them were actually used by USPSTF, which, which from their recommendations showed that 
actually doing an interval of 15 years starting at age 45 versus age 50 provided slightly more favorable balance between the benefits and burdens of screening. But when they looked at it, they still decided it wasn't strong enough for them to make their changes to the recommendations back in 2016. Um, so that's where it sort of differs. I think one sort of interesting thing was uh, they did say that by changing the recommendations to 45, they thought it may actually contribute to reducing dis disparities among population groups with higher disease burdens um, because they did say from their previous recommendations to start age 45 for African-Americans, which is different from all the other groups previously. Yeah. So how would broadening screening to outside at-risk groups yeah. to help reduce disparities? I was a little bit confused by that statement. That seems strange. Maybe, am I misunderstanding, Chris? Yeah, I think... I think the way they were looking at it is if they say that everyone under uh, everyone at 45 needs to be screened, hopefully they'll be able to capture more of those um, those those uh, uh, populations that are at risk. Just because, uh, yeah. in general, yeah. So yeah, it, it kind of takes away the the stigma from it, is what you're saying. Yeah, and I bet you it's got to be a payer thing too. So if more groups said age 45, then more insurance companies will pay for age 45, oh. and then we would catch those patients in the high-risk groups like African-Americans, Alaskan Natives, American Indian groups. But I mean, I right now don't recommend any of those right now because no insurance company is going to pay for my, my African-Americans at age 45. But if you get a, if you did a stool test, they, you know, the stool test is not that expensive. And if you get a positive test there, then you could send them for colonoscopy and it's no longer screening, I guess. If yeah. you have, if you, you know, if you have proof that there's blood in the stool or yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's that's a great way around it, and I never actually thought of it that way. So, actually, that I might start changing my practice because of that. The this sounds kind of like, and the, yeah. back to the disparity thing, it it almost sounds like with the new blood pressure guideline from AHA, where they just kind of lowered everything to one thirty over eighty, just hoping that like just everyone's going to get treated a little more aggressively than we are now. <laughs> I wonder if sure. that's this is kind of like along those same lines. Like, yeah, we're going to more aggressively screen everyone for colorectal cancer. Because there's not really a high uptake of colorectal cancer screening, you know that's an area where we fall short a lot. Um, mostly because patients don't want to bowel prep and they're they don't want a camera um, in their rectum, essentially. <laughs> so, darn makes sense. <laughs> All right, I think uh, I think the gong yeah, is I think coming. We're going to move on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there it goes. Did we tell the audience that there was going to be a gong? I don't. <laughs> I did. I said it right at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, All right. Maybe I didn't hear you because I was surprised the first time it went off. <laughs> didn't mean to scare you, Matt. Yeah. Oh, Matt, I think you have the next next article about procalcitonin um, in New England Journal of Medicine from May 2018. Yeah, I, I think I've just been obsessed with procalcitonin because uh, I was just hoping that it would work. So this is by David Huang et al. And it's a procalcitonin uh, article from New England Journal, May 2018. And it was trying to answer the question, you know, can using procalcitonin assays in the emergency department in patients who come in with a lower respiratory tract infection, where you're just not quite sure if they need antibiotics or not, can it help us differentiate between groups that do and don't need antibiotics? This, this, this kind of sounds like that one uh, presentation we had at ACP. Is that except that one was for outpatients? Yeah, that was for outpatient. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah, so this was specifically in an emergency department, and they were in about uh, I believe it was fourteen different U.S. hospitals. And what I thought was really cool about this study, they did a really great job of like sort of educating people, and they 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 gave out these uh, the Pro Act 
ProAct was the trial group, and they had these great handouts like with national antibiotic guidelines. And the, the main four lower respiratory tract infections that they were looking at were asthma exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, acute bronchitis, and community-acquired pneumonia. And then, so that was on one side, and they kind of said when those patients, if at all, should get antibiotics, and then when, based on procalcitonin levels, you should consider using antibiotics. And actually, when they gave this great education to all the providers in these institutions, and then they gave everybody (laughs) procalcitonin levels, actually... With the provider's clinical judgment worked just as well as the procalcitonin. It actually kind of coordinated. So if the providers thought someone was low risk and didn't need antibiotics, their procalcitonin level tended to be low. And the pro so the procalcitonin level really didn't add much. Is the kind of the bottom line of this study. So it doesn't really seem to to work for this indication, and it probably would just add to the cost. So I was kind of disappointed because I was hoping it would work. You know, well, maybe it works if you have really bad clinical judgment. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, excellent. I, I I was wondering about that, Chris, because like they 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 sort of you know they ahead of time they they uh, educated everybody and they had these great handouts. So I think it kind of probably it probably helped with antibiotic stewardship, and maybe that's why it didn't really show a significant difference. But if you go to a place where people are just giving everyone antibiotics. Um, Maybe maybe using procalcitonin without an education, but I, I think it would be better just to educate people than you. Than do do you happen to know, were these mostly at teaching hospitals? They uh, they were. I don't know if they were teaching hospitals. To be honest, okay. So I I want uh, to say one thing is actually I when I first saw heard about this article I actually was reading uh, Ryan Radecki's editorial from Emergency Medicine Literature Note and he's got a fantastic blog post like discussing this as well so I, I do encourage other people if they want to read some more about uh, about this Ryan Radecki's really smart guy he's got a great blog and people should uh, at least take a look at it. Yeah, and I I think I totally dropped the ball and didn't say this. the 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 primary outcome was total antibi total days of antibiotic exposure within a thirty day period. And it was about four four days and change in both groups, and there was no difference in safety. Meaning, like by withholding antibiotics based on a procalcitonin assay, or uh, there was no difference in uh, adverse events. So no one was harmed by following the procalcitonin assays. But it again, it didn't lessen the days of antibiotics. It's seems like the, there's different ways that people can interpret this. And I'm only saying this as someone who knows how a medical administrator thinks. What they could do is look at this and say, hey, I can just essentially provide the same level of care with a lower cost and then use a, and, ha- and tell them, okay, this is our standard of care. You're going to uh, order a procalcitonin on these patients, that, you know, point of care testing in order to help differentiate whether these patients uh, need antibiotics or not. Now, I, I think that that's a bad way to interpret the data. I think a good way to interpret data is to say that those who are well-trained provide at least a decent interpretation of the history and physical in front of you to ascertain who needs antibiotics and, who's, and who doesn't. Because, yeah, anyways, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> and a masterful transition. You know, no, there was... And, and there the... There was an article earlier this year looking at ICU patients, when can you stop antibiotics? And it did seem to it did seem to have a benefit there. And that was an article um I forget the journal, I think it was Critical Care Medicine and it was ja- published it was published in January 2018. 
Yeah, all of us who have taken care of patients in the ICU, that's that's very confusing because, first of all, if they're in the ICU, they're probably not going to be able to talk to you as well as someone in the ER on initial presentation. So it's difficult to get a at least a, a you know an, an an understanding of uh, symptomatically how they're how they're proceeding at that point for one, and secondly, hospital acquired infections are just they're they're difficult. Yeah. Do they do they need antibiotics or not? Right. Well, they weren't they weren't using procalcitonin from that study. They weren't recommending that you use it to decide initiation. They just recommended that you could follow right. procalcitonin levels when it drops below it. threshold. You could you could stop it, and that you know that lessened antibiotic exposure, and I believe also had an effect on mortality. Yeah. Now, all of us here, we all do inpatient medicine, at least some, to some degree. Are you guys ordering procalcitonins routinely or not in your patients with respiratory infections? I don't want to say routinely, but certainly in those in those cases where I, I'm confused, perplexed. Yeah. I'm not doing it because my institution has a turnaround time of about a week. So I don't think the institution believes in it enough that it's available. Uh, it's available as point of care testing. Yeah, as 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 a chief of our service, I'm I'm trying to in, in, institute a, a point of care testing for procalcitonin at all of our outlying clinics, which I think will be helpful to some degree. I've used it for 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 example for COPD patients do point of care testing for procalcitonin, which is, has helped to determine whether that patient needs antibiotics or not, because that's a difficult case. I mean, there's they almost every single COPD patient in the correct clinical context looks like they have an infection. What you don't you don't think the cardinal symptoms are highly evidence based? <laughs> You know, they, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going there. Yeah. Okay. Paul, what, what are you doing? I am not, I, I can say with confidence, I've never ordered a procalcitonin. So that makes it easy. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> We're well into overtime on this one, Paul. I think you have another article. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Paul, Paul's got an article about, um, about, about lipids from JAMA April, 2018. I do. And maybe you guys can help me about with this because it's another meta-analysis. Um, so I want to talk about statistics. <laughs> This is an association between baseline LDL and cardiovascular mortality LDL lower rates from JAMA, April 2018. And basically, what the, it's, it's as I mentioned, it's a meta-analysis. I don't know if I mentioned the meta-analysis part before, but <laughs> what they were trying to assess was, does your baseline LDL um, matter in terms of your risk reduction? So we know low-end cholesterol is good. That is, that is now, <laughs> that's now dogma, but it doesn't matter sort of where you're starting from. And so what they did is they, they looked at a bunch of studies because that's what meta-analyses do. And this is going to be my theme for the day. And in terms of what had to actually be included is was it had to have at least a thousand patients in that they were receiving LDL lowering therapy. They had to be on a statin, non-statin or statin plus something. And then they had to report cardiovascular mortality uh, and also overall mortality. And th- those are the, the, com- the co-endpoints that they actually looked at. And so basically what they found out and what I liked about this is anything that has that gives me some confirmation bias, I like <laughs> So what it shows is that you treat patients that have a high LDL cholesterol baseline and you lower it by a lot, they do a lot better. Um, and that seems to be fairly significant. So the, the greater the reduction, the better off they do. But that effect goes away if the baseline LDL cholesterol is less than 100. And so basically being super aggressive in what are ostensibly low-risk patients is not real effective. Um, so someone who's low-risk and healthy doesn't benefit well from a statin. Yeah, it's the only my only complaint, and they actually mentioned this in, in terms of the shortcomings, and it's not even a complaint, but they don't they didn't do any kind of subgroup analyses. This is just sort of big broad data. So I think we've all had those diabetic patients with an LDL cholesterol of like seventy-five. Right. And you have to ask yourself, what am I really doing here? Like how how good do I feel about this? And I, I didn't this did not lend strength to that necessarily. So I would like to see some subgroup analyses in terms of specific patient groups that they looked at, but um 
that unfortunately was not reported. But overall, yes, treating healthy patients with medications they may not need is apparently bad. And so that was my... They were talking about oh. more intense versus less intense therapy. And so they're, they're saying for a patient who are who has a LDL greater than 100, if you put them on more intense versus less intense therapy, there was a benefit for mortality and cardiovascular mortality. But it didn't really, it doesn't tell you like what were the patients who already had an LDL less than 100, were they already on a high dose statin and what was being added was like a PCSK9 inhibitor or, uh, or, or ezetimibe. Like, I, I think we don't know enough about that. It was just sort of, so that to me, that was part of the confusing thing here. Like, <laughs> I just, I just don't know, like if that LDL greater or less than 100 is talking about patients who are already on meds or not. I guess that if I, I'm finally coming to it. That's what I was asking about, Paul. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I do this more rather than practice changing. I'll give it a half a hot cake, but I think it's sort of more proof of concept, right? Like, so we we already know that the degree of risk, the degree of benefit is commensurate with the degree of risk reduction. So if you have a high risk patient and you reduce by a lot, the patient's going to do better, and we kind of know that, and it sort of adds to that. And if you have a lower risk patient, probably not so helpful. So it's in, in my dumb dumb brain, like this sort of right underscores the baseline concepts, whether or not we'll actually change practice in that 100 number, I don't think is really all that clinically useful um, for practice, for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that. The broad, you're, you're taking the broad strokes. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It's what I do. Yeah. Anyone else? I think that was pretty good. I have a couple of more softball things, I think. Um, can you guys see all this, the script right now? Do you see that picture? Yeah. So, I have in the script this sort of this this really awesome looking freeze. Apparently, it's on the well. At least it used to be on outside the the Department of Health and Wellness in Fulton County, Georgia, and it's just like this beautiful freeze of like death being fended off by. Um, it looks like Paul this. Williams with his shirt off. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and. And I think one interesting thing is when I saw this, I, I think it was on Twitter and shared on Instagram, was that you know this 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 man holding holding off death is holding this this big staff with two wings and two serpents going up it. And when you look at this, a lot of people say, "Oh, that's the that's the symbol of um, medicine." But apparently, there is like this difference between the rod of Asclepius, which is the ancient symbol of healing and medicine, which is really just a single rod with a single snake going up it. And this, uh, this other staff is actually the, um, the staff of, or the rod of Caduceus, which is the traditional symbol of Hermes, which, um, basically is, has been associated with trade, eloquence, trickery, and negotiation. And apparently there's like this crazy, like historical reason why these two symbols have been mixed up throughout all the years. So, um, I just thought that was sort of an interesting thing. And I actually never knew this before this last month. Yeah. Do you guys ever known this? I, I, I heard it. I heard it somewhere. But I think. Uh, did you say that the symbol that we're currently using talks about trickery and uh, what was the what was the other part? Negotiation. Well, apparently. I, I did some I did some research and I think you know Adam Rodman not to bring to bring up his podcast the bedside rounds again he talked about a little bit too um, that you know there was some confusion and then the I think the Army Medical Corps started using that the symbol with the two the, the two wings and the two serpents like early on and then they just got confused I think nowadays most like known medical organizations actually know this difference and have made changes um, but for a lot of 
um, more commercial entities for health, they they know it's a more recognizable figure. And even if they know the difference, they'll just use the the, the wrong rod. <laughs> so I will say um, that with my shirt off, I do look like I'm battling death. <laughs> <laughs> So I I do encourage everyone to go to our show notes and take a look at this picture or the link to this picture on Instagram because it's it's a pretty cool looking work of art. Um, I know it's actually popular among some other of um, the curbsider team as well. Um, my second or uh, my last pick actually of of the episode is um, going back to I am reasoning. Uh, That's a great podcast that I actually so was pushing for before for people to take a listen to. Um, they recently had an episode called Words, which um, you know Art Nahill and Nick Skezit were sort of um, talking about uh, implicit bias and how it's affecting medical care. They actually did this great look into their article um, from Goddard et al. about Do Words Matter? And basically, in this, in this study in the Journal of Internal Medicine in May 2018, um, they had all these different, um, they had the same patient and they would write the note either in an implicitly biased way and, uh, one that's less implicit and uh, one, in a biased way and one less biased way. And we're able to really show that people really viewed the patient very differently. I think the, uh, the patient was a sickle cell anemia patient with chronic pain mm-hmm. and it was actually quite enlightening. So I encourage people to, you know, I think we should define implicit bias for the for the audience, though. If if people haven't heard of it, I, I first heard of it. Uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. It, he talks about the book. There's, uh, I think it was some Harvard researchers. They have this like this this uh, thing you can click through online, and it shows you pictures of people of different race, races, and you say like, is this good or bad? And he said that even him, he's uh, half African American, and he was saying that even him, he found that he had implicit bias, and he was like shocked by it. And uh, actually, the second time I heard about this, Jerry Powell did an episode as well on implicit bias, just talking about that and trying to recognize it in yourself, so you can sort of like beat it out of yourself. Essentially, that's not what they were talking about, with Jerry Powell, not beating it out of yourself, but uh, it is something that we need to know about. I think the first step about trying to improve our implicit bias is, is actually recognizing it in ourselves. So um, I recently did like a whole workshop with uh, Quinn Capers, who's at my at my home institution, and he has been actually working with our like our uh, med school admissions board and have been and actually currently we have like one of the most diverse um, medical student populations because of their their work on implicit bias and and how they look at art at uh, applications and interviewing um, applicants too so it's actually pretty interesting so i would actually encourage people to follow quinn capers on on twitter because he's got some really interesting things coming out he talks all over the u.s um, about implicit bias great Unfortunately, that brings our discussion to a close then. If you want to know about the tons of other knowledge food that the curbsiders have consumed in the last month, we're, we're going to, I'm going to leave it up to the listeners because we have this huge list. And some of us feel that, you know, people will be overwhelmed with the list and other people serve, I've heard that wouldn't mind just looking at it. So let us know. I'm not going to put it up on, on the show notes, but if you want it, if you implore me to put it up, <laughs> I'll send a separate link for it for people who want it. Okay. So I want to thank, uh, as always, Sarah Roberts, who is usually our producer for these episodes, but she was away on vacation this last week, which I think she probably definitely needed. Um, but she helps us on in, in producing this series. And also, I want to help all our other Curbsider teammates and listeners who continue to send us suggestions and uh, for the articles, news stories, and giving us ways that how we think we can improve it for, for it to make it interesting and educational. So... 
So uh, just one more thing, Chris. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Uh, yummy. What's <laughs> happening here? Yummy. <laughs> I was waiting for Stuart to interrupt me. Uh, you can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our weekly mailing list to receive the show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and we need your feedback. So hit us up thecurbsiders at gmail.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter at the curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Chris Chu. And Stuart's there somewhere. And I don't think Stuart's going to be able to sign off tonight. We've been plagued by technical difficulties tonight. Paul, you still here? And he's been Stuart Kent Brigham, and I remain Dr. <laughs> Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye. Here, hear me now? And it's thank too late. You to I already our, said goodbye. And thank you to our team of correspondents who keep the show running. Hannah R. Abrams is on Twitter. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram. And Chris Chumanchu is on Facebook. Thank you, and good night. That's me. That's me.